Well, my family members who are in Kentucky will watch that on live stream multiple times and will appreciate Bluegrass Sunday. Folks who know me know that I love music. I love all types of music. And I don't just love the musical part of music. I love lyrics. That's probably no surprise. I'm a words guy. And so there's this song on pop radio lately that's really got me thinking. It's called Numb Little Bug by M. Behold. And I watched an interview with the artist, and she says she wrote the song because of her experience with depression. She went through depression and had been prescribed antidepressants and was taking antidepressants, and she just wrote a song very openly about what that felt like and what her life was like. Here's the chorus. Do you ever get a little bit tired of life, like you're not really happy, but you don't want to die, like you're hanging by a thread, but you got to survive because you got to survive, like your body's in the room, but you're not really there, like you have empathy inside, but you don't really care, like you're fresh out of love, but it's been in the air. Am I past repair? This is the chorus of a chart-topping viral song right now. I mean, two things. Obviously, as a pastor, I want, along, I want to come alongside her and be like, has anyone ever shared with you the gospel? Like, don't you need some good news? This, is, this person's crying out. And, and so pastorally for her, I just want to share the gospel with her. But, but my point here is, and this is the power of music, my point was I was not surprised at all when I found out this song has gone viral. It exploded on a social media platform called TikTok, why? Popular among young people? Because a song that says, do you ever get a little bit tired of life, like you're not really happy but you don't want to die, you won't be surprised that this speaks directly to where so many teenagers are right now. So many teenagers. And there is something so powerful, so indescribable, when you hear someone open up and they share about a weakness in their life, when they open up, there's something so indescribably powerful. It's no wonder it went viral. When a teenager feels like, and even as a grown-up, when you feel like, wait, somebody else feels that too? You feel that too? I thought I was the only one. Very few feelings in the world like that. When you feel like you're the only one, and somebody becomes vulnerable and opens up and shares something, and you go, I can't believe it. I thought I was the only one. It is often the case that our strengths are what isolate us from one another. Look at her. She's so perfect. Look at him. I bet he never struggles with this. Oh, look at that family over there. My goodness, if they knew what a disaster we were. You know, our strengths tend to isolate. But it's our weaknesses that draw us together. When we're open and vulnerable with one another, we realize, well, you know, they shared with me that they don't have it all together either. Or I, I saw this moment of honesty where they're shared that they're struggling. And that for, there's something about that, isn't that, that draws us together, our weaknesses. I think that's why, perhaps that is why, after all these years, that is why David continually draws people as a Bible character. There's so many people that are drawn to David in the Old Testament, and really for the same reason, Peter in the New Testament, because we see David, and yes, he's a champion, and and let's be honest, David has been on a hot streak in our sermons lately. I mean, David and Goliath part one, David and Goliath part two, uh, 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 David makes a covenant with Jonathan, uh, David uh, spares Saul's life. I mean, he's an incredible hero. David, great bravery. David, great boldness. But we know that's not all there is to King David. 
He's a man of these great high points, but he's also these dreadful, dark, and lowly places. And that's where we find him today. And I think that's what makes him so attractive. Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 27. And you realize not only David is this, this, this man after God's own heart, this anointed once and future king of God's people, but he's also a flesh and blood human being like you and me. And here in 1 Samuel 27, David is in a dark place. He is depressed. He is discouraged. And I pray that today is a word for anyone who would say, preacher, if I'm honest, I'm in a discouraged place. I'm in a place of darkness, or I know someone who is. If you're a note taker or you just like to, you like to say, man, I really like to know where this thing is going before we get on the plane, uh, uh, the, I, I, I've, you, and I, maybe more to just help myself. I've arranged the material uh, too early, too late, right on time. There's your outline. Too early, can you remember that? Too early, too late, right on time. I'll leave it to you to judge whether the sermon will end too early, too late, or right on time. You already know, don't you? <laughs> All right, let's get to it. Chapter 27. We're going to try to cover a lot of uh, text today, and uh, so we won't be able to hit on every verse, but you'll see this is one of those cliffhanger stories. Chapter 27. Then, verse 1, then David said in his heart, Remember where we've been, right? He's, he's been chased by Saul. He's living in caves. He's in a dark place. Twice he spared Saul's life, and Saul is still pursuing him. So David said in his heart, now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than, than that I should escape to the, y'all not going to believe this, to the land of the Philistines. Oh, David, no. Yeah, then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. You want to go, oh, David, David, listen to yourself. Don't go be a traitor. Don't go over to the land of the Philistines. David, you're not. And David's saying, enough. Eventually, my good fortune's going to run out. Saul is going to catch up with me. And you just want to say, David, come on. Don't you know God is protecting you? Isn't it obvious God is clearly protecting you? And David would say, easy for you to say. You sleep in a warm bed every night. Easy for you to say. You don't have all these people depending on you. Remember, he's got 600 men and their families. He feels the burden. And over time, that weighs on him. So he does the unthinkable. Verse 2, so David arose and went over. And that word went over, that phrase went over, of course, is more than just he crossed over into enemy territory. He goes, he went over <laughs> and it, with the 600 men who were with him to Achish, the son of Mehach, king of Gath. He not only goes over, he goes to the very hometown of Goliath. And that phrase, went over, means not only geographically he went over, it's of course a phrase used of traitors. Betrayal. He went over to the other side. And the text takes pains to show us why. I mean, it's hard to judge in verse 3, and David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And it seems like, as temporary solutions always seem at first, it seems like it worked, verse 4, and when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, sure enough, he no longer sought him. He's not going to go into Goliath's hometown. He's not going to go into the heart of the enemy's territory. Now, you, you may wonder, by the way, why on earth, who's this king of Gath, this Achish, who would let uh, David, who slew Goliath, who's been this great enemy of the Philistines, how would he, why would he let him into his hometown? 
Well, have you ever heard the saying that uh, uh, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? What do they say? Uh, Common enemies make for strange bedfellows. Uh, The idea here is Achish is no dummy. He's like, wait a minute. This guy's being pursued by Saul. Saul wants to kill him. So if the king of Israel wants to kill this guy, huh, I want to kill the king of Israel too, right? And so we're on the same team here, even though we came by, and you know, even though, but hey, he took off the head of Goliath. This guy is a warrior and 600 troops. You ever heard of something called mercenaries? I can pay these guys and they can fight for me. And obviously he's not, he's, he's no fan of Israel because the king of Israel, Saul's trying to kill him. Well, if you say, okay, well, all right, all right, that at least makes sense why he was allowed in. But come on, like how long is that going to hold up? How, how many times can David walk past the old war? You know, they set up a war memorial in Gath to fallen Goliath. <laughs> Maybe. How many times can he walk past the Gath court square before somebody puts two and two together and says, I don't like this. This doesn't smell right, David, here among the Philistines. Well, David realizes the same thing. We're going to wear out our welcome. So in verse 5, David said to Achish, and you can see what he's doing. Um, <clears throat> if I have found favor in your eyes, uh, let a place be given me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. In other words, hey, could I get somewhere way out in the boondocks where nobody knows what I'm up to? I don't like being right here in the capital, right here in the center. And he, he puts a false humility on it. He says the reason is, I'm not worried. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? Now, it's, it's, it's a lie. It's duplicitous. But really, uh, it's also cringeworthy for everybody, for the readers who've been following along for Samuel. Here you have the once and future king of Israel bowing like a vassal to this pagan Philistine king. Should make you sick. So, but it, he granted it. So that day, verse 6, Achish gave him Ziklag. And then there's a note about Ziklag. Therefore, Ziklags belong to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. They were sellouts, but it was probably the first good night's sleep they'd had in a long time. They're in Ziklag, a place they were never supposed to be, but at least they're not in a cave. So now he's got these 600 men. How's he going to provide for their families? He's going to do, David's going to do what David does best. David is a warrior, and so he begins these raids. And his target, unbeknownst to the Philistines, were these tribes that were enemies of Israel. And he was brutal. Look at verses 8 through 11. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. For these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as sure, to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, the garments, and come back to Achish. So in other words, he would plunder the spoil and bring the king's share back to him. And of course, Achish would ask, where have you made a raid today? And David would lie. David would say, "Uh, against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of the Jeramelites, or against the Negev of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. You see what he's doing. He's, 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 he's fighting against enemies of Israel, but he's doing it in secret. And then when he comes to tell the king, what'd you do today? He said, man, I've just been fighting those Israelites. Just been wiping them out. And he's, there's never going to be any evidence to the contrary. Why? Because David knows dead men tell no tales. So he wipes out everybody. This will not be the last time King David thinks I can cover up a lie with murder. He learned that early and he'll use it later in his life. 
You see what he's doing. Well, Achish thinks, I got him right where I want him. He can now never go back to his people. I've got leverage on this guy. Verse 12, Achish trusted David thinking, well, because remember, he thinks if he's, if he's killing Israelites, then obviously I've got him in the palm of my hand. He's made himself an utter stench to his people, Israel. Therefore, he will always be my servant. Now, everybody can see what's going to happen. It's only a matter of time before the Philistine king, now that he's got this bold mercenary David with his 600 troops, everybody, everybody can see this happening. You wonder, David, did you not see this happening? Everybody realizes eventually the king of Philistia, the king of the Philistines, is going to march against Israel. And who's he going to want right there in the troops with him? Is this crack band of special forces led by David. Everybody can see this is going to happen. You're like, David. What were you thinking? And sure enough, chapter 28, verse 1. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. Now what? Now listen, if you say, David, how could you not have had the forethought to realize this was coming? Eventually, your number is going to get called, and you're going to be between a rock and a hard place. Now, you're going to be killed if you do and killed if you don't. If you go out to fight against Israel, all of Israel is going to turn on you. Now, you really are a traitor. You've been lying about your status, but now you really are a traitor, and you're going to die at the hands of the Israelite army uh, uh, as a a traitor, no less, and you're not going to do that. On the other hand, if you choose not to fight, if you say, "Uh, no, no, we're out, we're not going to fight, these Philistines have... They're no dummies. Then they're going to kill you. Now what are you going to do? And if you say to David, in a moment of darkness and depression, you made a decision and you didn't think that through, you would say, that's how it works. When you're in a dark place and you're in a discouraged place, you're not worried about the future. You're not worried. You say, how could you have gotten involved in this? Didn't you know the outcome? Didn't you? You say, you don't understand what desperation can bring you to do. It can bring you to do things where you're right on paper Of course I didn't think this through. Of course. So David has no idea what he's going to do. And so when the king says, understand, we're fixing to go out and fight a war, and you're going to be right there marching with me. David has no idea what he's going to do. So his answer is wonderful. It's the most noncommittal answer, and it's so great. David said to Achish, very well, you, you shall know what your servant can do. And the whole time David's going, I wonder what I can do. He has no idea. It's such a noncommittal answer. All right, uh, you'll you'll see. (laughs) Well, Achish said to David, very well, I'll make you my bodyguard for life. This one little funny note, the the literal translation of bodyguard is he who guards the head, he who holds the head. (laughs) The irony of a Philistine from Gath going, hold my head, David. And they're like, I did that once before with a fellow from Gath. Anyway. How's he going to get out of this one? <clears throat> well, uh, this is one of those Bible stories. And I, I, I should say, you know, if I were really spiritual, I would say they're all like this. But this is one of those Bible studies where you get, if you're reading your Bible at night, this is one where even though it's past bedtime and it's late at night, you got to keep going. you got to see how this, how this finishes up. I'm not saying all stories in the Bible are like that. Sometimes in Leviticus, you fall asleep before. But anyway, the point is, the point is, as you're reading, you go, how's David going to weasel out of this one? What, you know, how, how's he going to get out of this? But we got to pause and leave you on a bit of a cliffhanger, and the text does too. But <clears throat> pause and see if we can apply this part of the story to our life. And I call it too early. 
Go back with me and look at verse one. David said in his heart, now I'll perish. Nothing better for me. There's nothing better for me. Now I'm gonna die. He gets discouraged, he gets depressed, and so he turned traitor. And you wanna say, no, David, hang in there. What do I mean by too early? Here's my first point. David, it's always too early to give up on God. You gave up on God too early. Think about the way David talks to himself. Now I'll perish. There's nothing better for me. And you say, wait a minute, David. This is unbelief. What you're saying is false. And to anyone who would say, I'm here today, and my faith is hanging on by a thread, and I feel like giving up, what you're doing is you're talking to yourself like David talks to himself. Isn't that what he's doing? Isn't that what he means? He said in his heart, verse 1, it means he's talking to himself. Now I'm going to perish. There's no hope. It's all over. Whoa, 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 whoa. David, you're talking to yourself, but you're not talking truth to yourself. It's too early to give up on God. When I say that, when you say, maybe I should just give up, this, this whole following God thing's been too hard and it, it's too much and the addiction's going to win and the temptation's going to win, that is false. What evidence, David, can you point to to say that God has abandoned you? Hmm? David, go through your prayer journal right now. Go through your prayer journal from the past years of your life, since you were a little kid, and put your finger on any point where you can say, aha, there's evidence God abandoned me. You can't do it. And neither can you. Go back through what God has done in your life. You tell me. Find it. Spurgeon says, I call heaven, earth, and hell below as witnesses to find me evidence of the unfaithfulness of God. You can't do it. And you want to say, David, was he unfaithful when you were a little boy, tending your father's sheep and a lion or a bear came out after you? Was he unfaithful then? No, you slew the lion and the bear. Was he unfaithful in your life when you faced the giant Goliath? Was he unfaithful when you escaped the spear of Saul twice? Was he unfaithful when you went out a window? Was he unfaithful when Jonathan made his covenant to you? Was he unfaithful when you twice spared Saul's life? Was he unfaithful when I brought the king to use the bathroom in the cave you were in? Show me. It's false. That's the point. It's always too early to give up on God. And these thoughts of it's hopeless and I can't make it and I I might as well give up, those are lies. Why? Because it's not only that there's no evidence, it runs contrary to the evidence of your life. David, the irony of course is that David himself is always writing songs. That's why I love David. That, that's why I love David so much. The, 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 how he got here makes sense. On the one hand, he's in these terrible pits. On the other hand, the whole time he's writing psalms. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. You want to say, David, read your own stuff, man. Charles Spurgeon tells a funny story. He said that uh, he was commenting on, uh, on, on this very passage in a sermon, and he said, here I convict myself. I remember on one occasion, to my shame, being sad and doubtful of heart, and a kind friend took out a paper and read to me a short extract from a discourse upon faith. I very soon detected the author of the extract. My friend was reading to me from one of my own sermons. <laughs> Without saying a word, he just left it to my own conscience, for he convicted me of committing the very fault against which he had so, I had so earnestly declaimed. Now, a couple things. One, Spurgeon had some savage friends. 
I can't imagine somebody pulling out an old sermon and reading it to me. But Spurgeon also had some good friends. David needed a good friend to read to him Psalm 23 and say, you remember who wrote this, David? That's how it is. When you get depressed and you get discouraged, don't be surprised if somebody says, man, you're not yourself. David's not. He's not thinking in his right mind. But I'm so simple. Okay, so I've been hard on David, haven't I? I'm also, you got to understand, so sympathetic to David because when people are in pain, it's very easy for those of us outside of where David is to go, come on, but how did he get here? He's a human being. Look, he, he faced Saul once in the cave. He faced him again with the episode about the spear and the water jug. I mean, it's one thing to go through trials, but how long do you have to hold up under these trials? It's, it's, it's the time and the length of the trial. It's the weight of responsibility. And notice one last thing. Notice you can go back and look in your Bibles in chapter 27. Here's a word you will not find. There is a word that is completely absent in this whole chapter. It is the word Lord. God is not mentioned in 27. You won't find him. He's not there. This is a godless text. You say, well, when I say godless, I don't mean God wasn't present. I mean, apparently, David was completely out of consulting the Lord and here he's all alone and ends up in a foolish predicament where he wasn't supposed to be. So I want to say, David, keep the faith, but I also understand that's what makes David so human. That's why we're so drawn to him. Look, we realize these Bible characters, it's not like, well, this one's good, this one's evil, this one's good, this one's evil. No, no, no. It's just like us. The line that divides good and evil doesn't run between people. It runs right through our hearts. It seems that... Uh, there's a, we've got a little bit of David potential and a little bit of Saul potential in all of us. It seems David possessed all the weaknesses that led to Saul's downfall. You've heard me say this before, and I, I say it many times. People, I've learned over the years, people are not categories. We tend to categorize people, right? Put all these labels, politically, theologically, uh, good, evil, that one's bad. Oh, people, you are not a category. You are a long story. People are not categories. People are long stories. You're a long story, and so am I. You're complex and complicated, and so am I. And you're in the middle of your story. And the whole time you want to go, can't you see? Saul is in a worse pit than you're in. But that's just it. He can't see. Oh, hindsight, they say, is 2020. So I guess what I'm saying is be gentle on those that struggle right now. Be merciful. Be empathetic and understanding. But having said all that, be faithful. It's too early to give up on God. All right, now what happens next is chapter 28, verse 3. And this is great. You, you, okay, David, what's it going to be? How is David going to get out of this? And just when you're reading along in your Bible, and just as you're trying to find out what happens next, chapter 28, verse 3 says, Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had... Whoa, wait, what? What? What are we talking We're just talking about... I don't, I don't want to hear about Samuel. And now there's this whole story about Saul. I mean, can you imagine? This is like you're watching your favorite football team this fall, and man, it's down to the wire, and it's last second, and the clock's run out, and the kicker's back, and it's two points down, and he's got the field goal. The kick is up, up, and it's... We interrupt this broadcast to bring you urgent news, and you're thinking, it better be urgent. In fact, you're thinking, what could be more urgent? Well, the text here is saying there's something even more urgent. We're going to leave David in that predicament, and, if, and, and, and the camera flashes to Saul. All Israel mourned for Samuel, buried him in Ramah, his own city. And then this random detail that we don't realize why it's in there until just a few verses. Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. We know about that. We wonder, is David, is David with him? And Saul gathered all Israel and they encamped at Gilboa. Here it is. Here's the big war. And when Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. 
Saul is alone. Repeatedly, he has repeatedly rejected God, and now he's utterly, hopelessly alone. What, what the text is interrupting us to tell us is, however bad David is, Scripture's showing Saul is in a much worse place. Because David feels alone, Saul is utterly alone. This is one of the hardest practices passages for a preacher to preach on because of verses like verse six. It should send chills down your spine. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Remember the Urim was an Old Testament device used by kings with the help of priests to discern God's will. Well, where, why didn't he get a priest? Uh, he had killed them all in Nob, remember? In this way, of course, it's sort of a dreadful fulfillment of something Samuel said many verses ago in chapter 8, 18. He said, you're going to ask for a king, and you're going to realize what a dreadful mistake you've made. And in that day, actually, I think it's up on the screen, 8, 18. And in that day, he said, you, you will cry out because of your king whom you've chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. And sure enough, that's what we have here. Saul is utterly alone and corrupt. He has, his conscience has been seared and his heart is headed to a point of no return. He was incapable of that, of that thing that would have saved him and his people that day in the battle of the Philistines. William Blake says, most terrible effect of cherished sin. It dries up the fountains of contrition and they will not flow. It stiffens the knees and they will not bend. Isn't that some image? The thing you need in that moment is repentance, but sin creeps in your heart and stiffens the knee so it won't bend in repentance. In this dreadful place, he looks for guidance, even from a place that we just learned a few verses ago, he himself had forbidden because of God's law. He goes to occult practices. He decides to dabble in witchcraft. Verse seven, then Saul said to his servants, seek out for me a woman who is a medium. This is a sorceress, a psychic. That I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, we can't do that, Saul, because you've banished them from the land. And everyone, when there's a rule in the country, everyone follows it perfectly. Oh, I love this. The servants are like, oh yeah, everybody knew exactly where one was. They're like, oh, okay. So when Saul put them out, he didn't exactly put them out. Anyway, his servant said to him, behold, there's a medium at Endor. So he went. And I'll let you read this story for yourself. It's really an incredible uh, story. He asks this woman to summon Samuel from the dead. And here's where, I just got to be honest, the Bible leaves out answers to all sorts of questions we want to stop and ask. Right? I remember as a teenager reading this story going, whoa, whoa, whoa. It brought up all these questions like, could she really summon Samuel back from the dead? And where was Samuel and how did this work? And unfortunately, the Bible says this is not the main point of this passage. It strikes me, just I'll say in passing, that if uh, at the Mount of Transfiguration, if the Lord wants Moses and Elijah to appear there, then uh, he can make Samuel appear here. I, how, I don't know. But the Bible uh, seems to want to draw our focus not to that, but to this the word of judgment. Samuel appears in verse 15, and Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I'm in great distress, and he was. For the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me, and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I've summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, you, you just said your own problem, man. This is between you and God. Samuel said, why, why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? Whoo. In other words, what, what, what do I have to do with this? You need to go straight to God. The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand, given it to your neighbor David, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord, did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you 
this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines. You're going down tomorrow. And tomorrow you and your son shall be with me. <laughs> Anybody miss what that means? It's over. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. He's saying because of your rejection, Saul, God's going to be silent to you. God will judge and you're consigned to death. Then verse 20, then Saul fell at once, meaning this wasn't a gradual thing, full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, beaten nothing all day and all night. And there's your king, Israel. The, what, what, what do we know about Saul? He was tall. He stood head and shoulders above everybody else in Israel. There's your head and shoulders above Israel, king, full length on the ground, crumbled. Well, this, this psychic, this sorceress, along with the servants, can convince Saul to eat. And I just noticed in passing how sad and pathetic this is. Verse 24, the woman had a fattened calf in the house. She quickly killed it. She took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it. I, I, I do also, the, uh, she says, just have a morsel of food. Have a morsel of food. And then she goes and butchers an entire side of beef and bakes all this food. I thought this is such a southern thing to do. Just eat a little something. <laughs> Meanwhile, it's this huge feast. Anyway, she put it before Saul and his servants and they ate and rose and went away that night. Notice, it was a meal fit for a king. The trouble was the man was not fit to be king. So sad. You can't help but see this pitiful last supper of Saul, his only companions, his servants, and this witch of Endor. And then he goes out. <laughs> Reminds you of another last supper where one left the supper and the Bible says, and it was night. Notice the last word of the story night what's the application for us i'm calling this section too late and the word is clear listen to me repent before it's too late please please don't ask me preacher do you think there's a point of no return in other words do you think you can get to a point where it is just too late for a soul on on this side of death while they're still living can a person reject god so much that they can no longer hear god call softly and tenderly and their conscience has been so seared they're beyond repentance can a person put themselves beyond repentance don't ask me that because i can tell you my only I, well you can ask me i'll tell you right now what my answer is let's not find out i don't know but let's never find out the message of 1 Samuel 28 to me could not be clear. It's not to debate the theological doctrine of apostasy. It's a stark warning to anyone who can hear my voice. Do not harden your heart toward God. If you have been rejecting God, if you've been putting off getting right with the Lord, you are risking eternal separation from God. That's not my words. I don't take any joy in saying that. That's from the word of God. Isaiah 55, though, says there's hope, but the hope is now. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is found near. Well, what does this mean? Does this mean there are times when God won't be found or when it's too late? I don't know, but I don't want to find out. I'll put it to you this way. Salvation is a lifetime guarantee, but a limited time offer. Act now. Isaiah 55 goes on to say, how? How do I act? Repent. Let the wicked forsake his way. Let the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon I don't know. I know what it means to pardon. I don't know what it means to abundantly pardon. Grace upon grace. But it's beautiful. Well, we leave Saul condemned to his lonely last supper. But we haven't forgotten about you, David. 
And we haven't forgotten that the last point is right on time. So too early. It's too early to give up on God. David, it's too early to give up on God. To Saul, you want to say, repent before it's too late. And to you, I would say, it's too early to give up on God. To you, I would say, repent before it's too late. And finally, God's grace is always right on time. God's grace is always right on time. So we go, the the text takes us right back to the cliffhanger previously on David. (laughs) Chapter 29, verse 1. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek. You're like, yeah, yeah, we know, we know. And the Israelites were encamped by the spring that's in Jezreel. We know that already. What's going to happen to David? As the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, this is going to be a slaughter, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish, the commanders of the Philistines said, what are these Hebrews doing here? I love it. They're not, these, these battle-hardened Philistine soldiers, they're not dumb. They're not naive like Achish. And Achish, you almost laugh at the scene, and Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, is this not David, the servant of Saul? king of Israel, who's been with me now for days and years? To which they're like, that's exactly who he is. (laughs) That's the problem. Isn't this a great scene? What? What's the problem? It's just David, you know, servant of Saul, king of Israel. I, I don't know if he's being funny here, he's being facetious, but he's been with me now for days and years. That's actually not true. He's been with him for one year and four days, I think was we learned in earlier verse. And since ah, he deserted to me, I found no fault in him to this day. Well, he hadn't exactly deserted in his heart, and you haven't found no fault because he's been carrying out these raids behind your back. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him, and the commanders of the Philistines said to him, send the man back that he may return to the place to which you've assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? In other words, how could he get back in Saul's good graces? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? In other words, think it through, Achish. He's in the back while we're fighting. If he's on the outs with Saul, but his heart is to get back in with Israel, what better way to do it than to lop off some of our heads and bring them back as a trophy to Saul? And I can't prove it. I can't prove it. But I think that's the exact moment David's like, that's a good idea. (laughs) I don't even know if he thought of it. I think David is still like, how am I going to pull this off? And they say, is this not, is this not David of whom they sing to one another in the dances? Saul has struck, this song must have absolutely broken all Billboard top 100 pop records. It makes it all the way to Gath. Anyway, isn't this the one they sing? Saul has struck down his thousands. David is ten thousands. Achish called David and said to him, I got to give you the bad news, David, which of course you can imagine David's response. As the Lord lives, that we don't have time to preach on how a pagan king is swearing an oath by Yahweh, but whatever. As the Lord lives, you've been honest. That's not true. And to me, it seems right that you should march out and in with me in the campaign. For I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, the Lord's do not approve of you. So... Isn't this something? God uses, God uses pagan Philistine warriors to accomplish his will. Look at verse 7. So go back now and go peaceably that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. God's grace right on time. Now here, David should just take the win. In verse 8, he doesn't do that. David said to Achish, what have I done? You're like, David, 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 be cool, man. <laughs> like, what? whoa, 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 whoa. David objects. What have I done? I, maybe I think he objects because he, it's dawned on him. He could, he could cause a lot of damage here as a fifth column in the army. But what have I done? 
What, what have you found in your servant? This is, uh, what have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now? That I may not go and fight against the enemies of my Lord the King. Again, now at this point, even the reader doesn't know what David's up to. Because there's layer upon layer of hidden meaning here. What if what he means, on the surface, it's like, let me go fight. I deserve to go out and fight against the enemies of my Lord the King. But maybe what David means is, no, my Lord the King is not you, Achish. It's Saul. So let's start this battle so that I can fight against the enemies of my Lord the King. Not the Lord you think it is, but the Lord I think it is. Even now the reader's so confused, we're like, I don't know, David, just walk away. And Achish answered David and said, I know you're as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, just an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, he shall not go up with us to the battle. Now then early, rise in the morning with the servants of your Lord who came with you and start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. Did you notice the last word in Saul's story? You can go back and look, is what? Night. They rose and went into the night. David, delivered by God's miraculous intervention, got up and went early, and the last word in his story is light. One sinner's story ends in night, the other ends in light. Why? Well, here's the application of all this. Musicians are going to come and lead us in a time of response. Perhaps the most important thing I'll say when it comes to it's, it's always too early to give up on God. It's always too early. Why? Because you should never give up on God. And you need to repent before it's too late. The reason I say God's grace is right on time is the headline here is God's grace. Listen, if you walk out of here and you go, okay, the application is, I, I see why. I see why, why David, his story ends in light and Saul ends in night. I see why. If you say, it's because David was so good and righteous and faithful and Saul was so wicked, then I would say you've not been reading this story. They're both covered with blood and sin, aren't they? The application is not, listen to me carefully, the application is not, don't be like Saul and dabble in witchcraft. Instead, be like David and betray your country and, and, and murder a bunch of people. <laughs> David messed up. Saul messed up. Everybody see what I'm saying? They're both blood-covered, guilty sinners. So the only hope for David, the only hope for Saul, the only hope for any of us is the grace of God on undeserving sinners. And though David did not deserve it, just in the nick of time, the grace of God found David in a pagan Philistine camp. So that's what I wanna, that's what I wanna tell you. This, was, that, this is the burden that I carried this morning to get across to you. After this whole story, David is stuck in a camp of the enemy where he has no business being, and he got there because of depression, and, and, and I don't judge him too harshly, and we shouldn't judge him too harshly, because who knows what we would do in that moment. But he's there where he's never supposed to be. And after this whole thing, where grace came and found him, after this whole thing, he had one more line for his prayer journal. And thankfully, we get a copy of his prayer journal. It's called the Psalms. And do you know, to this day, something he wrote in his prayer journal, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has given comfort to millions upon millions of Christians ever since. Here's what he wrote. Even when I'm gathered up next to this valley, which is just gonna be a big, it's gonna mean death for me, death for my people, death for everybody. Even next to this valley, it's like the valley of the shadow of death. I'm not gonna be afraid, because here's what I've learned. Surely, goodness and mercy, though I wandered so far off, do you see? I'm not where I'm supposed to be. 
But surely, I've learned, surely goodness and mercy will follow me. That word follow is too gentle. The word really means pursue. Follow like stalk, chase after. Surely his goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David looks around and goes, I've been living in caves. I've been living in Gath. I've been living in all these places, but it's his goodness and mercy. It goes back to that hesed, that never-ending, never-stopping, always-and-forever love that will not give up on a sinner. So don't give up on God. It's too early to give up on God. And repent. Come back to him. If you and God are, are not okay, repent. Turn to him before it's too late. And you'll find that you don't have a long way to run back. You don't have a long, some people say, I don't want to come back to God. I got too far to go back. I've wandered so far from God. I got too far to go back. What you don't realize is the minute you turn around, you realize God has been pursuing you. See? So turn. Repent. You'll find his grace is always right on time. Let's pray. God grant to anyone who feels like David, discouraged, despair, depression, grant, oh God, that they might find hope where David found it, in your right on time grace. God, for anyone who right now feels that they're in the spot of Saul, God grant that they might repent and let today be that day before it's too late. For all of us, oh God, grant that we might have a heart of faith even in the dark times. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.